Well, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm pretty eclectic in my music choice. Anyone else uh, that way as well? There's every once in a while, you just have to listen to, uh, to different types of music. For instance, every once in a while, you have to listen to music like this. Right? Just every once in a while. And then when you start to find the rope or the gun or whatever, you got to kind of stop, right? And then there's times that you just kind of really need to listen to music that's more like, like this. Right? Some people are going. Okay, so how many of you out there would be willing to say that you were or you are heavy metal music fans? Anyone? It's okay. Okay, so what are your favorite groups? Led Zeppelin. Metallica. What else? ACDC. Van Halen. Twisted Sister. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's talk about the group Metallica for just a minute, all right? Let's talk about Metallica, all right? In 1991, they released what uh, it was their album titled The Black Album, all right? And, and on that album contained songs like Enter Sandman, which if you're a New York Yankees fan, you know that song. It's the song that Mariana Rivera has played when, when he comes in, even if they are, you know, the Stankies. And uh, there's also songs like Nothing Else Matters or The Unforgiven. Uh, one song on that album that, that fits the topic that we're talking about today is titled The God That Failed. And the lyrics are going to be on the screen behind me as, as I read them to you. The, the lyrics go like this. Pride you took, pride you feel. And I can't do it with that. Anyway. Um, pride that you would felt when you'd kneel. Not the word, not the love, not what you thought from above. I see faith in your eyes, never you hear the discouraging lies. I hear faith in your cries. Broken is the promise, betrayal. The healing hand held back by the deepened nail. Follow the God that failed. Now that song was written by James Hatfield in response to some anguishing circumstances in his life. As a child, when he was really young, his father walked out on him and his mother. And at the age of 15, his mother died from cancer. And his mother died in spite of the fact that that she, or because, or whatever you want to say, that she refused medical attention. What she said was that she was relying on her faith and her belief in God and in God alone to heal her. And Hatfield believed that God had failed them, that the healing hand of God was held back by the deepened nail. Follow the God that failed. Have you ever felt like God failed you? Maybe a better way to ask that question is, how often do you feel like God fails you? How often do you feel like God just comes up short, that he doesn't come through, that, that God isn't all he was cracked up to be? Because we cry out to him, right? We, we ask God for things. We, we cry out and ask God to move mountains on our behalf. God, give us a good job so that we can provide for our family. Give us friends so that we can do life together. Protect my family from harm. Would you heal someone who is sick? Would you do these things? And yet... In situation after situation, it seems that the situations get worse, not better. 
It seems that things don't go the way we want them to. And for all intents and purposes, it really feels like God has failed us. Which makes me wonder, and maybe you've asked this question as well, is God a failure? Has God failed us? Does God really even exist at all? And if so, where is, where is he? Now maybe that describes where you have been in the past. Maybe that describes where you are right now. You're just kind of questioning and, and wondering. And the reason I, I kind of bring all that up is because we're trying to walk really slowly through this Holy Week, through these seven days, through this time where we're studying about the, the life and the death and the life again of Jesus Christ. And today we're on day five, which what happens on day five is what we call Good Friday. It was Jesus's crucifixion. And 2,000 years ago, uh, when this happened, Jesus' closest followers, his mother, his disciples, they didn't know what was really happening. All they knew was that their Lord and Savior, Jesus, was dying on the cross. And for all intents and purposes, Jesus had failed them. He was a failure. Last week, we read how Judas betrayed him and how Peter denied him. And how the disciples, they scattered because they thought, well, you know what, I, I might be next and I want to get away from him because after all, he can't really be the son of God. He's not who he said he was because look at what's happening to him. Author and theologian N.T. Wright says it like this. It was the denial of everything they longed for. The stupid and pointless snuffing out of the brightest light and best hope Israel had ever had. Jesus' crucifixion must have made the followers wonder if Satan had been tricking them all along. If God had not, after all, been at work in Jesus. If Israel's God was maybe not the world's creator and judge, after all. If maybe Israel's God didn't exist. If maybe there was no God at all. Watching Jesus get dragged off to a mockery of a trial, a brutal and degrading beating, and then the worst torture and death imaginable would force all those questions on them. You know, one of the problems that we have today in our culture, in our society, in our place in time is that we have the Bible. And that's usually not an issue, but in this case, it's an issue because we can turn the page. We can look to John chapter 20 and know there's an empty tomb, right? We can say to the disciples, hey, take heart, it's okay. There's going to be an empty tomb. Jesus is going to come back, and it's going to be amazing. The world will never be the same. This is good stuff. Hang in there. But they didn't have that in front of them. They did not know these things. They knew that this Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, was in front of them dying on the cross. That he was maybe not who they thought he was. And what I want to challenge us to do this morning is to not turn the page is to not know what we know, but to be in that moment and to do our absolute best to identify with the disciples and what they were experiencing and what they were feeling. N.T. Wright goes on to say, if we don't recognize that, then we have domesticated the cross, turned it into a safe symbol of private faith and forgotten what it was really about. And then we wonder why we are left with nowhere to turn when things in our lives, our own families, our own communities, our own civilizations seem to go utterly chaotic totally random. We cannot jump ahead. As much as we want to jump ahead, we cannot go ahead to the resurrection. We can't put that in our thought process. We have to stay right here in day five, and we have to deal with the pain. We have to slow it down and address things that we would rather not address, think about things we would rather not think about, and go through emotions that we would really rather not go through. You and I often wonder, 
why we are experiencing pain, and that's what the disciples were going through. We often question God about the circumstances that are beyond our control or, or the, the things that are beyond our comprehension, and that's where the disciples were, and that's where we need to be. We have to stay there for just a few moments this morning and deal with that pain. We have to deal with the chaos that's replaced order. We have to deal with uncertainty. We have to deal with the fear that has replaced hope. We have to deal with all of these emotions because the reality is that there may be some people in this room and people in our community and people in our world that they live their life in day five. They live their life with questions and with pain and and with suffering because life oftentimes seems to be filled with pain. It seems to be filled with disappointment. If you've ever applied to a college or to a school or, or to a graduate program and not get, gotten in, if, if you've ever tried out for a team and your name wasn't left on the roster, if you've ever walked into your job and walked out with a box, if you've ever done these things, you know what it's like. You, you've experienced those things. You, you know pain. If, you, if you've ever had a spouse come to you and say, I don't love you anymore, and I'm not sure that I really ever did. If your mother, your father has ever walked out on you, if, if you've ever had a child choose a life of suffering over a life of, of love. Have you ever felt like the ball's just never going to bounce your way? Doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to get it right. You can try and try and try and you will fail and fail and fail because no matter what you do, it's just not going to work. It's not going to get any better. It seems like the things we experience whenever we're in a day five It's tough because the pain that we go through is extraordinary. And it leaves us with a lot of questions, doesn't it? We ask questions of God. We we question ourselves. We question others. We pray for people to be healed and they die. We pray for people to come to God and they continue to to walk away. Recently heard about a, a, a young mother with two young kids and her husband walked out on her. Just left doesn't make sense. Uh, there's a, a family in the church who the, the husband backed out of the driveway and ran over their two-year-old daughter. How do you make sense of that? What do you do with that? We, we hear people all the time get those gut-wrenching diagnosis whenever they get back from the doctor. We have people that, that lose their jobs, that, are, that they're struggling with depression, they're, they're struggling with addiction. They have children that are choosing to do things that we would never have them choose to do, that God wouldn't have them choose to do. We have children that are, are scuff, suffering with, with things like schizophrenia and, and different things, and, and it's tough. One of the toughest things I do in my job is talking to people and hearing about just all the stuff that gets put in their life. Because there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. And day five is is extraordinary. And and it causes us to wonder, God, are you there? God, are are you really listening? Do you really care? Why are you allowing us to go through this? I'm sure that that's the way the disciples felt. I don't know how much of the Old Testament that you, you have read, but if you read through the prophets and you read through the Psalms, what you find often is the writer there struggling, questioning, and they're hanging on to their faith and their hope in God by the smallest of threads, and yet they're still hanging on. They held on to a hope that God was still God, even when God didn't seem to be acting like God. The question that you have to answer first is, do you believe that 
that God is God even when God doesn't seem to be acting like God? Is he still God? Do you believe that he is? We've been looking at this seven-day journey through this melody, right? And trying to take it like a song and and looking at it in four-part harmony with the melody and the tenor and the bass line and the alto and and seeing how all those fit together. And, And to start, we need to go to the bass line today. We've got to go to Isaiah chapter 52 and Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah the prophet is prophesying about Jesus' death 600 years before it took place. And he's talking about the pain and the suffering that's going to take place. And what I want you to do is I want you to grab your bulletin. And on the back there, you'll see some blanks. And I invite you to grab a pen. And I'm going to read a healthy chunk of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And what I want you to do is as I read through that, just to write down some of those descriptive words that jump out to you, some of those adjectives that describe Jesus or or what he's experiencing. You write them down as I read. Don't worry about spelling them correct or getting the whole thing. Just so you know, as they jump out, just jot them down real fast. Here's, Here's Isaiah chapter 52, beginning in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their, eye, their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of many people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Isaiah the prophet writing, foretelling, prophesying about Jesus coming and what Jesus was going to do. And if your list is anything like mine, Here's the list I wrote down as as I read through it. Appalled, disfigured, marred from human likeness, despised, rejected, familiar with suffering, stricken by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, oppressed, afflicted, cut off, grave with with the wicked. What Isaiah is prophesying about here, we read about in John chapter 19. We see a story of violence. We see a story of someone being beaten so badly that people are not going to look at him. He's beyond human recognition. We see suffering and pain, and we see, we see the world doing its worst to Jesus, and they're getting away with it. And the reason that we, we have to go to the baseline first, to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53, is because we need to understand this. We need to understand that whenever we are suffering, whenever we're in the middle of pain, whenever you uh, feel like you're abandoned, 
What I'm about to tell you may bring you no comfort at all, but it still needs to be told. You still need to hear it. You still need to understand it. Every single time you are suffering, God is right in the middle of the suffering with you. He is right there with you. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. He knows what it's like to be abused, to be betrayed, to have someone who's close to you die. He knows these things. You see, when God sent Jesus into the world, he did so for many reasons. Yes, to forgive us of our sins and to make that sacrificial death on the cross, but he did it because he wanted to show us that God was a God and is a God of emotion. He's not a God who just set everything in place and, and spun it and then walked away saying, good luck, hope everything turns out okay. Instead, he's very involved because we're important to him. Jesus went through some of the most violent and most wicked acts in human history. And he knows how you feel. He knows what it's like to pray something and have God say, that's not my will. He knows what it's like to be separated to feel alone. Day five is an extraordinary painful day. It was for Jesus, and it probably is for you as well. Day five is when we uh, go through that, we start asking God questions. We start wanting a different answer. We suffer through the pain. And just know that when you suffer, Jesus Christ knows exactly what you're going through because he has suffered as well. Here's the good news. Jump back to the baseline, Isaiah 53, verse 9. It doesn't end in verse 9. Instead, it continues. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, for I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. And see, although nobody understood this at the time, Jesus' suffering and his death it not only demonstrated that God loved us, but it, it demonstrated that he wasn't a failure. Okay? I know that, that the disciples, that, that Mary, that, that his closest followers, they didn't understand this. From their perspective, from what they saw, Jesus had failed. And yet Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross served a purpose. The reality is we can't get to day seven that we enjoy talking about and that we rejoice over and that you know a lot of people come to church on Easter Sunday morning to celebrate. You can't get to day seven unless you have a day five. Jesus came not only to bear sin and to forgive us of our sins, but to also bear the burden of death. And through his death, he offers life to anyone who will believe and anyone who will accept it. In the darkest hour, Jesus' death burst forth life for all of us, if you choose to believe. Now, before we get to the melody part, We've got to backtrack, and I know we're, we're going slow, but we're going to jump all the way back to day one, okay? And if you weren't here for day number one, then you'll get this for the first time. But what happened on day one? Do you remember? Anybody remember? 
we were in John chapter 11 on day one. Jesus was at the height of his ministry. Things were going really well for him. He was performing miracles. And then he did something which caused all the Pharisees and religious leaders to want to kill him. What did he do? Anybody remember? He raised Lazarus from the dead. That's what he did. All right? And all the religious leaders were like, all right, this has got to stop. And from that day forward, they plotted a way to kill him. And in John chapter 11, we read that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And he comes to the tomb before he does that, obviously. And he comes four days too late, much too late, according to Martha. I, I want to read to you just a little bit of the exchange from John chapter 11. It says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And the next verse is the shortest verse in the Bible. We've talked about that. And if you're going to memorize one, here's a great one to memorize. John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now, imagine, if you will, that this is a movie. That this scene is a movie. And Jesus wept. And you can imagine this single tear strolling down Jesus' face as he looked very sad. And they would zoom in, right, with the high-def camera, and they would catch that one tear rolling down his cheek, and the music in the background would be swelling, and it would be this huge emotional moving moment, right? But this was not a moving moment for Jesus. This was not a time for a close-up. We know from history that, that when they cried and when they weeped and when they mourned, it wasn't this gentle, soft crying. Instead, it was loud. It was known. In fact, they would hire professional mourners to come in at the death of someone. After the family had cried out all of their tears and could do it no more, these professional mourners would come in for days and even weeks at a time after someone died so that people would know how great the loss was. In fact, even very poor families would hire two flute players and a professional wailing woman to come in and cry over the loss of their loved one. Jesus came into this scene where the people are wailing and they're crying. And we don't know how many people were there. We don't know how many uh, mourners were out there. And Jesus sees all of this taking place. And we know from the context that Jesus wept. But can we be honest for just a moment? Why was Jesus weeping? Why was Jesus crying at this point? Was it because he had missed his friend Lazarus? Was it because he felt sorry for the people? What were Jesus' tears? I want to suggest that Jesus' tears were a lot different than what our tears are at the loss of a loved one. They were filled with compassion. D.A. Carson says that whenever we translate, and it's translated this way in several of the different versions of the Bible, but whenever we translate that Jesus was deeply moved, he says it's an awful translation. It's a terrible translation. It actually should read that Jesus was outraged in this moment. And let's think about that for a moment. Let's, let's press the pause button for just a moment on the story. Was Jesus weeping because of his friend Lazarus, that his friend Lazarus was dead? This same Lazarus who in three minutes he's going to raise back from the dead, right? Was he weeping because he had died? Was he weeping because he was gone? How genuine would Jesus' tears be at that point? Carson suggests that Jesus was outraged. Here's what he says. He says, it's important to keep reminding ourselves of the context. Jesus sees all these people weeping, crying, and wailing in the face of death, and he's outraged. 
He is profoundly troubled, so emotionally worked up over it that he weeps. There is compassion in these tears. There's also outrage. Jesus is outraged not because he had lost a friend, but because of death itself. Death is such an ugly enemy. It generates endless and incalculable anguish. And for anyone steeped in the entire biblical heritage, death itself is a mark of sin. It's God's judicial response to our warped rebellion. Whether death afflicts us at 5 or 10 or 50 or 70 years, it comes and it is implacable. Every time there is death, it still hurts and it's painful. It's still ugly. This is not the way God made creation in the first place. And Jesus is outraged by the whole thing. You ever thought about Jesus being angry at death itself? You ever thought about Jesus just not appreciating the fact that death is here? It's interesting to me that when someone dies, we try to make them feel better, right? Because that's what we do. We try to make the family feel better. Sorry for your loss. And we really don't know what to say. I've got to tell you, I say a lot up here. But whenever I get in situations like that, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Because too often, I, I hear people say these, these trite statements and understand I know people mean well. And you may have even said these things. But I hear people say, well, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. God won't give you any more than you can handle. That, that God loves you and, and he's got a plan. You just have to, have to hang in there, right? All things work together for good for them that love the Lord. Oh, and I know the people mean well. And yet, I have to ask you this question. Do those things really ever make you feel better? At least they haven't for me. And maybe that tells you a lot about me. Here's the thing. And you don't need my permission, nor does my permission give you anything except my permission. But the next time someone says something like that to you in a trite manner, just deck them. That'll make you feel better, okay? The Bible is brutally honest about death. It says it's ugly. It says it's repulsive. He says it's our final enemy. And when God sees this, I think Jesus, he just gets so outraged over death because he knows that it's the result of a fallen world. And every time someone dies, I think God hates it. He hates it because it wasn't part of his original plan. And so anytime that you, you or a friend are abused or rejected or abandoned, if you've ever felt betrayed in your life, if, if you've ever just felt like that things aren't going to go your way, just know that God is right there in the middle of what's going on with you. And as, as much as you hate it, I dare to say that he hates it more than you do. Which brings me to this point. I hear what you're saying, preacher man. You're saying that God hates it. That's great. Thanks for sharing. But here's the deal. If God hates it so much, why doesn't he do something about it? You ever ask that question? God, if you love me so much, if you love us so much, then, then what are you doing? Why don't you make all this stuff better? Which brings us to the tenor part of this song, of this story. How we, re how we respond. What do we say to our community, to our friends, to our neighbors with this story as the backdrop. And, and I want to respond in two different ways, okay? The first one that we don't have time to go through this morning, we just don't. In fact, I'm still working through it myself, and so if you really want to talk about this, let's plan to get a cup of coffee, and we can talk about it, and maybe you can help me understand it a little better. But what I want to read to you is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 3. 
He says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, the impression that we get from God and Paul in, in this is that they have this shared vision that the development of our character and the development of our perseverance and, and our hope is more important than relieving us from our suffering. I got to tell you, I don't like that very much. I'd rather just not have the suffering. Couldn't we get this character, perseverance, and hope thing another way? Couldn't we figure out a, a better way to do this? We want to be healed of our suffering, and we want to be healed now. We, we don't want to have to go through this. And if he's not going to heal us, if, if we're going to have to go through this, would he at least give us an explanation? Could he at least let us see how this is all going to turn out for good? Can, can we at least see that part of it? Scripture tells us that he's more interested in building our character than he is relieving us of our suffering. That's the first response. Your character is more important than the suffering. The second response I would give to the statement of if God loves us so much, why doesn't he do something about all this pain? all this suffering and, and all this death? And my response would be, he has. He already has. You see, just before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says to the weeping Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus is stating right here that he is the one who has power over life and death. He is the only one. And when you and I live by believing, even though we will experience death ourselves, we can live forever. And that brings us to the melody part of the song. In, in John chapter 19, verse 30, where it says this, When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, one of the things you've heard me say before, but it's worth noting again, is that the, the word there, if there's a, a debt that's been paid, if it's been paid in full, any transaction, they would use the word tetelestai, which means it is finished, it is paid in full, it is completed, everything is taken care of, and Jesus has paid our price in full. We don't have to do anything else, it's done. No hoops we have to jump through, those types of things. Jesus is saying here that, is that the reason he sent, him, the reason God sent Jesus to earth was to take on sin and to die on our behalf. He was to take the sin and the shame and the pain and the punishment and all that stuff, and he was to put it on the cross, and by doing so, through his death, he gave us back life, a life eternal. God hates death, and yet God is with you in your time of suffering. God is there, and he did something about it. He nailed it to the cross, and he says, you do not have to suffer alone. Now here's the thing, and here's the hard part. Even though we know the end, the victory has still to be implemented. The details of how this is all going to work out are, are still being worked out. But we know that God is one. And now there is life to all of us who believe. Which brings us to the fourth part, the alto. Your part, and as we've said, it may not be the most important part, but it's the most important part to you. How do you respond to what God has done? Maybe for you, you're a little bit like the, the 
the mother of Jesus. You're like Mary, who, who stood at the foot of the cross, and you're looking up in amazement and bewilderment and wondering, what do I do now? What do I do because God has failed? Because Jesus has failed? Maybe you have a lot more questions than you do answers about God. Maybe you're like, like the disciples who scattered and, and fled. You figured out, you know what? I don't know that this whole thing is for me. I don't know that this message about Jesus is for me, and I'm not sure that I, I want to do this. And so you just kind of scatter, and you say, you know what? Maybe some other time. My challenge for each and every one of us, wherever we are in our life, whatever you believe, whatever you're going through, is to invite God into the middle of the chaos that you're experiencing in your life right now. To invite him in to be a part of what's going on. And in doing so, you might just recognize and realize that God loves you and he cares for you and that he's done something about it so that one day you no longer have to suffer and you never have to be alone. We we typically end our service like we will today with an invitation song and invite you over to the cross where you can pray with someone and they can talk to you about, about any type of decision that, that you want to make. But, but I want to close today a little bit different, a little bit different fashion. I'm going to ask you to join me in that and to be just a little bit vulnerable as well. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to uh, run through a few different groups. And if this describes you, I just want you to stand where you are and just remain standing for just a moment. If, uh, if you've ever had someone close to you die, a friend, a family member, would you just stand up right now? If you've ever been rejected, feeling like you were considered less than, if you felt like you just didn't match up to the standards that other people had put upon you, would you join those that are standing right now? If you've ever experienced the pain of divorce or the betrayal of a friend, if you've ever had a parent walk out on you, if you've ever felt unworthy, would you stand up? If you've ever been the victim of mockery, if you've ever had injustice thrown your way, if you've ever been made fun of because of the color of your skin or your Midwest accent, or maybe just for what you believe and people don't understand that at all, would you join those that are standing? You see, here's the deal. There's two things that I want you to understand. And to, to illustrate this point, I'm going to invite you to do something that may be stepping out of your comfort zone just a little bit. But would you join hands with the person next to you? And then would you fill in the aisles and, and join hands with those next to you? And it could be somebody you don't know, and this may make you uncomfortable for just a minute. But that's okay because maybe they need it worse than you do right now. And here's what, here's what I want you to hear. Two things. The first one is this. That God is with you. He knows your suffering. He knows your pain. He's been there. And he gives us all hope. And the second thing is this. Um, in our small group a, a while back, um, one of the ladies at the end of our, of our time together just asked the group, hey, would you, would you pray for me? Would you pray for my mom? She's... She has Alzheimer's, and it's tough. It's tough not only for her, it's tough for the family, and, and she just simply asked that, that we would pray for her and pray for her family, that they would have encouragement and peace and, and comfort and just have wisdom to know what to do. And it was amazing to watch God show up at that moment because around the room, individuals and couples shared, you know what, my mom's dealing with that too. My father went through that. My aunt, my child. 
And there was no joy in anyone saying, oh yeah, we're going through that. No, it wasn't like that. It was that moment of just understanding. The second thing I want you to understand, you're not alone. You do not have to go through this alone. There are other people out there, and you're in a room full of people that are broken and are hurting, and yet have hope because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's what I want you to know more than anything else is that God is with you and you do not have to go through this alone. We were never created to go through this alone. God loves you. I want to pray for all of us for just a moment. Would you, would you bow your heads and just pray with me? God, God, we love you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the incredible sacrifice that you made. God, we thank you that, that you experienced all of this and that we don't have to go through it alone. God, we thank you so much that you are with us each and every step of the way. God, thank you that not only did you come to give us hope, but you came to give us peace and to know love that we could never experience on our own. God, we know that, that in the worst days that we experience, not only are you there, but you've already done something about it. You have given your son Jesus, and all we have to do is believe and accept him, follow him, and, and live our lives in such a way that, that bring glory and honor to you. God, thank you. Thank you that we can stand with you and we can stand as a community together, knowing that you're with us. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You know, the... We're going we're gonna to sing a, a song this morning. And if you need to talk to somebody about what's going on in your life, if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you want somebody to pray with you, we invite you to wait, make your way over to the cross. Maybe today what you need to do is to take the hand of whoever's hand you were holding and just say, how you really doing? And it's more than the church answer. Oh, good, yeah, yeah. Maybe you really need to have that conversation. Maybe lunch needs to be delayed so that you can invest in someone so that they can know that they're not alone. Would you sing with us? And if you want to talk to someone, make your way over to the cross. We'll meet you there.